prayers that we pray every single Sunday morning at this church, including that prayer. Uh, it's the week of Thanksgiving, a little historical tidbit. The early Puritan churches in America were known for their long prayers and their particularly long sermons, something that makes me feel comfortable. But the long prayers that they referred to were upwards of an hour and a half, two hours. And if a, if a preacher would pray a prayer of less than an hour, he was thought to be derelict in his duties in these early Puritan churches in America. So as we pray what may feel like long prayers to you, maybe take this week as an opportunity to reflect on history and perhaps be thankful you aren't part of an early Puritanical church. Nevertheless, I'm going to do my best to preach a really long sermon this morning. So... If you have your Bibles with you, open with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Mark, which could easily be titled, Jesus is the Son of God. Nearly 800 years before the events of today's text, God put his love for the nations on display in a very powerful way. He did so by calling Jonah, a prophet of Israel, to go and prophesy in the land of Nineveh, in what is now modern-day Mosul, Iraq. And the reason why God sent Jonah to Nineveh was to preach and to call the Ninevites to repentance. Most of us know the story of Jonah as the tale of the really big fish that swallowed the really small prophet. But like most Sunday school stories that we learn, the actual story is more compelling than that. It's a, a drama more than it is something out of a storybook Bible. It's, it's darker than we learned it. Understanding more about the history of the Ninevites, the people that God called Jonah to preach to, will help us to appreciate what was taking place in that book. You see, the Ninevites were the enemies of God's people. They were hated God's people by God's people. They were barbaric and cruel to God's people. For God to call Jonah to go preach repentance and grace to Nineveh would be like a modern-day American politician giving a pass to ISIS or to Al-Qaeda or to Al-Shabaab for the terrible things that they have done. In the story of Nineveh, we see God extending love to his enemies. In sending Jonah to preach repentance to the Ninevites, we see a shadow of God taking the gospel to not just the Gentiles, but the worst of the Gentiles, offering them peace in spite of their grievous transgressions against him. In today's text, we see Jesus, the greater Jonah, stepping into enemy territory as he takes the gospel to Tyre. Tyre was a region that, is slightly, that was slightly northwest of Israel. Josephus, who was a historian born soon after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says that the inhabitants of Tyre are notoriously our bitterest enemies, speaking of the Jews. Notoriously our bitterest enemies enemies. Not only did we not like them, they were the worst of our enemies. And not only do we not like them and they are the worst of our enemies, they are notoriously so. Everyone knows that Tyre is full of people who hate the Jews 
and the Jews hate those inhabitants of Tyre. See, there was this thing called the Maccabean Revolt, where the Jews tried to rise up and throw off the shackles of oppression. They won a little, lost some more, and in the end, after the Second Revolt, they failed. And one of the reasons why they failed is because the inhabitants of Tyre united with the enemies of God's people and fought against the Israelites. One scholar says that had Tyre not joined in the fight against them, they might have succeeded. Do you remember the Cuban Missile Crisis? If you say yes, you're dating yourself. I don't remember it, but I've studied about it in the history books. The story of it is, soon after Cuba adopts the communist worldview, they're used by the hand of Russia in its not-so-covert anti-American dealings. And that led to all sorts of drama between Russia and America and Cuba. And for that reason, Americans have harbored a long history of anti-Cuban sentiment. Now, while these two situations, Jews and Tyre and America and Cuba, are not totally analogous, they do serve to show us how one people can develop a strong sense of negative feelings towards another people after a dispute. And these are the kinds of negative feelings that the Jews had towards the inhabitants of the region of Tyre. So the question is, why does Jesus go there? Well, perhaps Jesus needed a rest. As we've seen, everywhere Jesus goes, he's working, 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 healing, casting out demons, preaching. And every time he tries to rest, he's not able to receive it. He's always looking out for his disciples, making sure that they get the rest that they need. I think that's probably true, especially as we just saw last week that Jesus' last encounter was basically a royal rumble with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He just had another big dispute with the religious leaders of his day. So it's possible that he's going into Tyre to kind of just get away from it all, just to get a little bit of a respite, just a break from the constant healings and exorcisms and arguments with religious leaders. But I think that there's another reason, another deeper reason that Jesus goes to Tyre. I think it's that when he goes here and he does what he's going to do in today's text, he's foreshadowing, giving a glimpse of that which is to come. Let's read today's text together. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. As I read today's text and see Jesus' encounter with this image bearer of God from Syrophoenicia, 
I'm struck by the similarity of Jews and Gentiles. Certainly there are vast differences between Jews and Gentiles, and their name gives you a hint of that. But a deeper, more fundamental understanding of the two shows that there's probably actually more in common between them than is different. They're both human beings created in the image of God. They're both living in a post-Genesis 3 world. They're both lost, desperately, hopelessly lost, unless God does something to save them. Jesus' ministry up to this point has been almost entirely amongst the Jews, God's chosen people. But now as Jesus ventures into the Gentile land for the second time in his ministry, we see the same sorts of needs amongst the Gentiles that we saw amongst the Jews. As Jesus went from Jewish village to Jewish village to Jewish village, he encountered people who were physically ill, who needed spiritual help with demons in possession, and who needed his teaching. And the same thing is true as Jesus comes into the Gentile lands. He immediately encounters people who have the same sorts of needs. The last time that Jesus went into a Gentile land, he encountered a man severely oppressed by a demon. Here today, he finds a woman with her young daughter also oppressed by a demon. In Mark chapter 5, we encountered a Jewish man in great need. Do you remember that? It was the man who also had a child who was in great danger. This was the man who was the ruler of the synagogue. Now, on the surface, these two people, this Syrophoenician Gentile woman and the synagogue ruler from Mark 5, could not be any different. He was a man. She was a woman. He had significant influence and power. She, being a woman at that time, probably had no influence and no power. He was not only a Jew, but he was a well-respected, well-studied Jew. He was elected by his peers to be one of the rulers of the synagogues. She was not only a Gentile, but a Syrophoenician by birth. She was not just any Gentile. She lived in the land of Tyre. Yet both of these people were desperate. The synagogue ruler and the Gentile woman were brought to the end of themselves, and they approached Jesus in their desperation. Both of them had a sick child and were at their wit's end. You see, although one character here is a Jew and the other is a Gentile, both of them are the children of Adam. Both Jew and Gentile alike live in a world of, fall, of the fall, in a post-Genesis 3 world. Now, Paul is clear to say in Romans chapter 3 that there are some advantages to being a Jew. But being able to escape the effects of the fall are not one of them. Pious Jews lost children to fevers in the same way that Syrophoenician Gentiles lost children. Jesus says it this way, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. The sun rises on the evil as well as the good. Jew and Gentile, evil, good, we all live in a world tainted by sin. The blessings of life in God's world are available to all, but the curses also belong to us all. And I think one of the reasons that God has ordered life in just this way is so that we would all see our great need for Him. I think it's on purpose that just because 
you are part of God's people doesn't mean you get to escape the repercussions of the fall. You see, it's when the well-to-do, respectably religious man is brought to the end of himself because of the effects of the fall that he seeks out Jesus in faith. And the same is true of this Syrophoenician Gentile from today's text. Read verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the longer I've walked with Christ, the more evidence uh, I've seen of this in the church. Contrary to the drivel of the overly intellectual scholars of our time, Christianity is not just a religion for the poor or for the ignorant or for the marginalized. I know millionaires, millionaires whose testimony is the exact same thing as ex-drug addicts and ex-gang members. They both say, I saw that my situation was hopeless and in my desperation I looked for a savior. Whether we have a fully stocked 401k or are making it week to week, we all need Christ. Whether we come from a home with both parents or we come from a single mother home where even our single mother was barely around, we all need Christ. Whether we have had much access to religion and the things of God or have had little access to the truths of the gospel, our needs are the same. And the effects of the fall show us to the show them to us all. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus offers hope and salvation to Jew and Gentile alike, slave and free, male and female, young and old, American, African, Chinese. We all have free access to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what I've just said is true. Everyone has free access to God through faith in Jesus Christ. But I need to qualify that statement. I need to put a little, a little asterisk next to it. It's kind of like the statement from Acts chapter 10 where Peter says, God does not show favoritism. There needs to be a little asterisk after that statement. You may not see that asterisk, asterisk printed in your Bible. You know what an asterisk, asterisk is, don't you? It's that, uh, that little star next to something that tells you that you need to go to the bottom of the page and look for the caveat. It's kind of like if you get a coupon in the mail for Chili's, you know, buy one, get one free entree. I'm taking advantage of that. You better believe it. But there's an asterisk next to it. And if you see that asterisk, you better pay attention or when the bill comes, you're going to be really, really upset. You look at the bottom, it says, uh, you know, limit one coupon per table, drinks not included. You better make sure you read that. In the same way, when we see that God in Christ is freely offering salvation to Jews and to Gentiles alike, that there's no partiality in God, we need to look for the asterisk. Now, you won't see that printed in your Bibles, but where you will see it is in scriptures like this from Romans 1.16. This is, everyone loves this verse. For we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Yes, Amen. This is my life verse for the Jews first and also to the Greeks. Although there is no favoritism, there is a prioritization. 
Although there is a free offer of salvation to all, that offer begins with the Jews. We see this principle played out in live action as we read the book of Acts. As Paul goes from city to city, city to city, village to village, the first thing that he does when he gets to a place is he goes to the synagogue to try to reason with the Jews first. And once he's been rejected by the Jews, then he goes out to the rest of the world. Like most things with Paul, he didn't invent that system. He was merely imitating the way of his master, the way that we see Jesus acting in today's text, where he clearly states that his ministry is prioritized to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. That's the point of his parable. Let's read it in verse 27. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So, Jesus says, Let the children be fed first. This text is, we're going to come back to that in a minute. This text is so incredibly offensive to modern Americans for a number of different reasons. The first reason is that Jesus is quite obviously calling this woman a dog. Now, that's not super particular to Americans. I don't think anyone anywhere likes being referred to or compared to a dog. Uh, I actually remember in language school, one of my teachers, his name was Julio, great guy. There was a missionary who really, really loved Julio, and so he named his pet dog after Julio. And Julio was incredibly offended, and offended in a way that I didn't even understand. I thought it was nice, but he said, no, that's a dog, I'm a person, how dare you? Yeah, so that's, that's the first offense. No one wants to be called a dog. But the second reason this parable is so offensive is because Jesus is saying, there is a line, and you are not in the front of that line. You cannot cut in line. Let the children eat first, says Jesus. So let's break this parable down. In this parable, the children represent the Jews. The bread represents the ministry of Jesus and what he has to offer. And the dog represents the Gentiles. So Jesus is telling this woman, you are not my first priority. I'm not going to take my bread away from my kids and feed it to the dog. Now, before we dig in any more to this, we need to be clear. This is an offensive saying. I, I can't hide it. I don't want to hide it. One of the things that was kind of discouraging as I studied this text this week is the way that so many commentators tried to take away the offense of the statement, and in order to do so, they had to say and do some really dumb things with the text. If Jesus never offends us, he's probably not God. If Jesus never offends us, we're probably not reading him rightly. And also, we, we tend to think that Jesus only says hard things to religious leaders, but that's not true. Jesus has hard things to say to all of us, including this woman in today's text. So, with that being said, and me being clear that I don't want to diminish in the slightest the offense of what Jesus is saying here, I do think if we pause and take a step back and look at the parable a little bit more closely, we can see that this offense isn't quite as offensive as you might imagine. First, we have to understand what Jesus means by dogs in today's text. What does Jesus mean by dogs? Well, 
calling a Gentile a dog was just a common epithet of the Jews in the days of Jesus. It was an offensive saying, and it was extremely offensive. The dogs that roamed the streets and the villages of ancient Palestine were unhygienic scavengers. They were more like jackals than lassie. But what we should note in this passage, and you won't see this unless you read Greek or unless you read somebody who you trust with the Greek, is that Jesus is using the diminutive word for dog in this parable. Now, by the lack of oohs and ahs from you guys, I'm guessing you may not necessarily know what that means. Don't worry, I'm going to tell you. The diminutive is the way in almost any language you soften a word. In Spanish, you do it with almost everything. Sal, which is salt, becomes salsita. Fat, which is gordo, becomes gordito. And when you put the diminutive on the word, you're lessening it, you're dampening it. But when Spanish people do that with the word dog, perro, it becomes perrito, which means puppy. And it's the same thing in Greek. When the diminutive form of the word dog is used, it refers to a puppy. Now, to be called a puppy is only slightly less offensive, to be clear. But it seems as if Jesus is not necessarily calling this woman a scavenger dog from the streets, but rather a puppy. And where do puppies typically live? Well, in the home. Now, that may not be the best argument that Jesus is referring to this woman as a house dog. But I think when we see the woman's response to Jesus, it's clear that that's how she understands him. Because when she responds to Jesus at the end of verse 27, um, excuse me, at 28, she says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the, ta under the table eat the children's crumb. Now, the dogs of ancient Palestine would by no means be under your table in your home. So it seems clear from the diminutive form of the word dog that Jesus is using, as well as the way that the woman hears Jesus using that word, he seems to be talking to her as if she's a house dog. That's pretty significant. It changes the way we understand the parable. Now, that leads us to the second point of the offense of this parable. The woman is not offended. Isn't that incredible? She's not offended in the slightest. You see, Jesus, even if he's calling her a house dog, is still calling her a dog and not a child. And that's offensive. But she's not offended. Rather than saying, how dare you? Sir, how dare you? The woman just acknowledges what Jesus says about her. And then she begs for mercy. She doesn't say, who are you to caricature me, to compare me to a dog, to say that I don't deserve a place at the table, that I don't have a place at the table? She just says, okay, but don't the puppies get to eat too? Isn't this so incredible? And isn't it just like us modern Americans to be offended for this woman when she's not even offended herself? I remember coming into contact with Americans and Westerners in the jungles. We would ride on boats together as I would travel back and forth to villages. They were there to take a vacation and kind of do like their ghetto tourism. I actually lived there, and I would hear them make comments about how Westerners were coming into the jungle trying to force their culture and customs and language and dress on the native peoples. 
Well, as someone who lived amongst the native peoples, I knew that to be exactly the opposite of the case. The native peoples lived in great fear, in ignorance, in darkness. They liked shorts and jeans and t-shirts. They didn't want to speak their tribal language anymore. They wanted to speak the trade language so they could get a job and earn some money and take their family out of the jungle. They didn't want to go to the brujo, the witch doctor anymore, when they had pink eye. They wanted some missionary doctor to come rub magical goop in their eyes and get rid of the infection. It's just like modern Americans and Westerners to find an offense where there's no offense to be found. But here there is an offense to be found, to be found but the woman doesn't take offense. So if the woman doesn't take offense, we should not take offense for her. Jesus is merely telling her the truth about herself, and she accepts that. Not only does the woman not take offense, but she also doesn't do the opposite of that. She doesn't get into what I call the Eeyore syndrome. Oh, woe is me. I guess I don't have a place at the table. I'm just a dog at your feet. No. And that's what we do often when we're confronted about the truth of ourselves. When Jesus tells us about our sin and where we stand in relation to him outside of his salvation, sinners either get really, really angry or we get saved and we get really, really, really depressed about it. But this woman sets an example for us. She says, even if it's true that God, in his great wisdom, hasn't prioritized me in this offering of his good gifts, I know that there's still enough goodness for me to be had, even if I'm not first. This woman's response is a challenge to us. On the one hand, it shows us how to accept the fact that we're not the most important thing in the world. We're not always first. We're not preeminent. We're not the main star of every show. We don't get all the trophies. In the ministry of the gospel, with Jesus, we see that there's stratification. And we like to imagine that we'd be the first ones to eat. But the fact is, we're probably just going to get the scraps as far as Jesus tells it. But on the other hand, it challenges us to recognize that those who come into the kingdom last still come into the kingdom. And then they rejoice when they do. I think about this parable every time I go to get on a plane. I hate getting on a plane with Amber. She always wants to be first in line as soon as they call our section, which because we buy cheap flights is still the last section. But everyone just, you know, the plane won't board for 45 minutes and the line begins to go from the terminal all the way to the bathroom and I'm just sitting there hanging out watching a movie on my computer or reading the Bible. Um, and I just sit there comfortable in my chair watching these people stand in line and I'm, I'm thinking, what is the rush? Whether you get on the plane first or get on the plane last, you're still going to get on the plane. You're still going to get where you're going. First or last, strong or weak, puppy under the table or child sitting at the table, all who place their faith in Christ, like the woman in this story, will inherit the earth. Even if you make it into heaven by the skin of your teeth with the smallest amount of mustard seed faith that there is, you will inherit the earth. You will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And you will inherit Christ himself. We should all, like this woman, focus less on what we perceive to be fair 
and just delight in the fact that we get anything at all. One of the common things that I hear from Christians, particularly American Christians in the South, especially as uh, subjects like election and predestination come up is, well, that's not fair. It's not fair. Well, maybe you're not the best determiner of what is and isn't fair. Maybe you in your fallen state shouldn't stand over God in judgment and say what is and isn't fair, rendering a judgment on the God who made you and who is absolutely, perfectly righteous and good. Is it fair that you're not in hell right now? Is it fair that rather than punishing you for your sins, that he punished his perfect son for sins that he never committed? Is it fair that Christ endured the wrath of God for sins that he didn't commit? And that you get to go to heaven because his righteousness becomes your righteousness? Is that fair? Does it seem unfair to you that Christ was prioritizing Israel and his ministry? Well, consider the fact that he didn't have to come to save any at all. The fact that he saves any at all is not fair and is abundantly gracious. Yes, God did love Israel in a special way. Yes, God elects and predestines some and not others. Yes, God raised up Pharaoh just to crush him. But he also saved Moses. Moses didn't deserve it. Moses was a murderer. And he hid his murder. And then he ran like a coward. There was nothing good and deserving in Moses that said, ah, yes, I'm going to save that guy. It wasn't, fair that he, it wasn't fair that he saved Moses. But God is a better judge of what's fair than us. He takes vessels of sin like you and me and he saves us. He takes dogs that are under the table and then by faith he makes us children at the family table. You should marvel at and the dog becoming the child is exactly what we see in today's story. This Gentile woman was on the outside. She was unclean. But when she heard the words of Jesus, she believed them. The account of the same story in the book of Matthew says that when Jesus heard her response, he responded like this. Woman, you have great faith. You see, she hears the word of Jesus and then she believes it and she trusts it. That's what faith is. As Art Azurdia rightly says, faith is not some blind allegiance. Faith is trusting in what God has revealed. He goes on to say, faith isn't merely believing in God. Faith is believing God. Faith is knowing that when God speaks, He accomplishes. Faith is knowing that God's words are the same thing as God's actions. If God speaks it, it's done. She believes what Jesus says about Himself as the one who gives the bread. And she also believes what Jesus says about her and where she stands in relation to Him. Brothers and sisters, a wrong understanding 
of yourself may prevent you from accessing the bread that Jesus is offering you. Our prideful inability for us to accept what Jesus says about us may prevent us from accessing what Jesus has for us. You see, everywhere that Jesus has gone so far, as the good, kind master of the house, he's been trying to give bread to the children at the table. But the children of the table don't like hearing that they're children at the table. They don't want to think that they're the ones who need to be cared for, taken care of, given anything from outside of themselves. Although the woman is a dog and beneath the children, the children are still a lower position in the household than the master. And when Jesus goes and he says, I am the master and I have what you need and I'm going to take care of you like a child, the children say, we don't need you to take care of us. You're not our master. Eventually, the children take over the house and put their master to death. The great irony of Jesus' ministry to the Jews is that the ones that he came to feed ended up rejecting his food. And so he took it to others. But this woman doesn't reject Jesus. She's told that she's the lowliest member of the household, the family pet. But she accepts it. And in accepting her lowly position, she is exalted as a child. Jew and Gentile alike are all called to the same thing. That is, to believe what Jesus says about them. Friends, I'd encourage you to take the things of God very seriously, but to take yourself a little less seriously. To consider the the, the magnitude of God and Jesus Christ in the gospel, and to consider the lowliness of your state. The higher you view yourself, the less sweet the gospel is going to sound to you. The more difficult it's going going to be for you to accept the reality of the good news of the gospel. But what if Jesus tells us something about ourselves that we don't want to hear? What if Jesus tells us that we're not good people? That we're sinners in great need of a Savior? What if he tells us that our heart is unclean? What if he says you're not unclean because of the things that you touch and the food that you eat? You're unclean because you're already unclean. Will we receive what Jesus says to us? When he tells us the truth about the lowly state of our souls, will we puff out our chest in pride rather than bow our head in submission? If you don't know Christ this morning, I hope you know that He loves you. You see, one of the reasons that I think it's easy for Jesus to call this woman a dog in this parable is because He Himself will become like one of the dogs. When the people He came to save put Him to death, He became the lowliest of all creatures. He became lower than the dogs in the streets. There was no one as unclean as He. And He became a dog, the lowliest of dogs, so that we could sit at the family table and be fed like children. And no one is beyond the scope of this love. No one. Brothers and sisters, we should consider this parable and what it tells us about the way that we do evangelism. If you listen to Rob Bell or whoever the new pseudo-Christian leader is, If you listen to them tell it, 
People will not respond to our evangelism efforts if we tell them offensive things about themselves. If you meet uh, someone you think is a brother or sister in Christ who's at an unhealthy church, they say, whatever you do, don't tell them that they're not at a healthy church. You're going to offend them and scare them away. If you meet someone who's lost in sin, don't tell them that they're a sinner, even if it's true. You're going to hurt their feelings. There was a prosperity preacher named Miles Monroe. He is now dead, facing the wrath of God. In one of his sermons, he tells the people at a particular church service this. Don't nobody want to hear about no blood on no cross. Blood, nails, spears in the side, that's not what we're supposed to be talking about. Another Christian leader says this. People will never convert if you tell them things about themselves that will hurt their feelings or make them feel bad about themselves. And that's true. If you think that that's what conversion is. If you think that conversion is merely a sociological phenomenon where a person begins to come to church on a weekly basis and pray more and maybe read their whatever religious text they may believe in more and perhaps they start using their money more altruistically, if you think that that's what conversion is, you're right. You won't win people over by telling them hard things about themselves. But if you have a biblical understanding of conversion, which says that conversion is not just an external religious activity change, but a fundamental transformation of the heart, then you will not see conversions unless you tell people the truth about themselves. Telling people how to fix their problems and how to feel good about themselves will not get you there. Now the entirety of the gospel is not offensive. A big chunk of the gospel is that God created you and He loves you. He made you in His image and likeness. He wanted you to be kings and queens in the earth. You were meant to be reflections of His glory, ruling this land in perfect harmony, unity, peace, justice. Part of the gospel is that you're loved more than you could ever know. But the really offensive part of the gospel is that you're lost and you're more sinful than you could ever imagine. And the good news of the gospel is only as good as it is when you realize how bad the bad news of the gospel is. The aroma of Christ is only as sweet as it is when you come to appreciate the gag-inducing stench of your own sin. If you see yourself as a person who basically has it together, who's basically good, who doesn't really need a whole lot of help, then the gospel will never be sweet to you. If you can't see yourself as a lowly position in relation to God, you will never appreciate the gospel. So as we share the gospel with our friends and our family members and our co-workers, we should tell them the truth about how much God loves them. But don't stop there even if you start there. Find some way. It doesn't have to be immediately. You don't have to be right at their neck, although, you know, I, I appreciate that style as well. But as you have opportunities and you build relationships with your family members and co-workers, the best way to love them is sometimes to say hard things to them to tell them the truth about themselves. 
even if they don't receive it. A person who sees themselves as God sees them delights in the bloody cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the petulant child that thinks that he deserves everything as he sits at the family table takes the bread and throws it on the ground when he gets it. But the hungry dog underneath the table licks up every last crumb of what Jesus has to offer. Returning to the woman's faith, we should notice that this woman is one of the few people in the Gospel of Mark who encounter Jesus and receive Him in faith. Not only that, but this woman is a daughter of Babylon. She's not a child of Abraham. But when the true and better Abraham comes to her, she receives Him. But that's not the only thing. She's one of the few people that receive what Jesus says in faith but she's also the first person in the Gospel of Mark to understand a parable of Jesus. The first person in the Gospel of Mark to understand a parable of Jesus. Everywhere that Jesus goes, he tells these parables, and as far as we know, people aren't really getting it. Maybe they get it, but Mark never tells us. And the only thing we know about the disciples is that after Jesus finishes teaching them publicly, when they get alone, they're like, okay, Jesus, tell me what the secret is. I don't really get it. How am I going to unlock this thing you just told us? But this woman understands immediately. And the way that she understands it is by entering into it. You could preach a whole sermon on that. Not only that, but she's also the first person in the Gospel of Mark to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. When I read that, I thought that can't be true. So I went back and I, I just kind of like read everything up till now, looking for it. I couldn't find it. So I did a word search on the internet. Then I did a word search in my software. Lord, 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 Lord. Yes, she is the first person in the Gospel of Mark to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Look at, look at verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the, under the table eat the children's crumbs. Later in the Gospel of Mark, the first person to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God will also be a Gentile. And that doesn't happen until chapter 15. How unlikely is this? That the people who have access to the fullness of the revelation of God end up rejecting God Himself. How crazy is it that the God of the Jews comes to the Jews first only to be rejected by them and then to be immediately received by those outside of His covenant? Consider this irony as you decide who to share the gospel with in your life. Many of us are afraid to share the gospel with people because we think we might offend them. We think that they won't listen. We think that there's not a chance that this or that person will hear what we have to say or want to consider our words. We all too easily assume that he or she won't listen because of this or that thing. I think about Spencer Climax's testimony when I think about this. The guy who came to his bunk in jail and shared the gospel with him the first time was rejected. And after one rejection, you have every reason to believe that there's no good reason to go back and share the gospel again. But Gerald went back the next day and shared the gospel. And then he went back again and shared the gospel. After three rejections, he has every reason in the world to believe that Spencer will not receive the gospel. 
But he goes back a fourth time. And he goes back and back until finally Spencer listens to him. Hears the gospel. Receives the bread that Jesus has to offer him. And is saved. I think about Russell Berger's testimony. If there was anybody in the world who should not be a Christian, it's Russell Berger. His dad used to train him up to go argue as an atheist against Christians in school. This is what you're going to say. If they try to say this, you're going to say that. If they say this, you're going to say that. And Russell actually had the intellectual bearings to be able to make a bad worldview like that work somewhat consistently in his life. He had the natural physical giftedness to be able to, you know, succeed in other endeavors. By all, by all earthly, worldly metrics, there's no reason that Russell should have been brought to the end of himself and to, see, and to see his great need for Christ. And yet that's exactly what happened. And we could just go around the room and just talk about people who have come to see their great need for Christ that if you were to look at it from the outside, you would think, oh, that person, it would have been very unlikely for them to come to Christ. So what I'm going to say next is going to feel kind of corny. We don't really do stuff like this in this church. But I'm okay with corny sometimes. Sometimes. I just want to challenge you guys to think of two or three people in your lives, maybe that you haven't shared the gospel with, but you've been kind of convicted to do it, you've been afraid to do it. And then write their names down and then share the gospel with them. Just try to find some way to give them the bread of Christ. Two or three names. I know that that sort of thing is really scary for some people. It's scary for me. I know that I am an extreme extrovert. That I can walk into a room full of 50 people and it'll feel the same to me as if it's just me and my wife. But even I get scared of evangelism sometimes. I embrace awkward, as many of you know. Uncomfortable situations are much less uncomfortable for me. I kind of dig the awkwardness. And yet sometimes when I'm on the plane next to someone, I get a little nervous about sharing the gospel. I, what if they say this? What if they reject me? Then it's going to be awkward. We're going to sit here for another two hours in the air, and I don't really know what I'm going to say after I told him he's going to hell. <laughs> for the introverts, the extreme introverts in the room, or people who just are kind of new to the faith or lack confidence, I know that a challenge for you to share the gospel with someone is probably feels like I just put a 10,000 pound weight on your back. So I just want to tell you four things. Number one, you can just get better at the gospel by getting better at sharing the gospel. Right? Find something that works for you. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God, man, Christ, response. You know, the Romans road. I don't know, something like that. There's a hundred different ways that we can kind of memorize these succinct, pithy things about the nature of humanity and sin and Christ and salvation. And when you have something committed to memory like that, it just kind of makes it easier. You don't feel like you have to be a genius. You don't feel like you have to come up with some super deep thing right there on the spot. You can just kind of walk through the steps. Practice it. I know it seems corny, but I've done it with some people right here in this room. I've encouraged them to memorize one, two, three, four. You know, if someone looks at you and criticizes you for that way of sharing the gospel, you just ask them how they're doing in sharing the gospel. Which leads me to my second point. 
God has used less to do more. If you're afraid that he can't use you to share the gospel and to lead someone to Christ, I promise you, he has used much less than you in order to bring someone to Christ, that is, to do much more. Number three, we have to learn to deal with rejection. I mean, for millennials and whatever this next generation is, rejection is like the greatest fear in life. Whatever we do, we cannot be rejected. We would rather not apply for a college than be rejected if we don't get into that college. I understand that. But faithful evangelists are rejected significantly more than they are received. I've shared the gospel with, I just can't even tell you how many people. And I can tell you how many people have gotten saved in response to that. I can count them on both hands. I don't even need to go to my toes. I cannot tell you how many waitresses I've initiated conversations with trying to spark spiritual interest, trying to earn a position into their lives so that I could speak the gospel to them. And that's borne fruit twice out of maybe 200. You know, we have to be okay with being rejected. Hey, do you mind if I share? Just, you know, I just want to share this with you. I think it's really important. Uh, no, nah, thanks. That's cool, man. No, thanks. That's cool. Can you handle that? If that's the worst that we have to face when we share the gospel... I remember one time I was at a conference. I was in Minnesota, and we were taking an Uber back to somewhere to go get something to eat. And I was trying to share the gospel with my Uber driver, and it went pretty well. And so I did what I always try to do after something like that. I say, hey, do you mind if I just pray for you real quick? And he said, uh, no, no thanks. And then he got out and got my suitcase. And you know what I did when I got an Uber back to the place where we were going? The exact same thing. Because... That wasn't really that bad. It was slightly awkward for like five seconds, and then he totally forgot about it. Hopefully not. And I totally forgot about it, and then we moved on. If you want to be faithful in sharing the gospel with people, be comfortable with rejection. Number four, if you're genuinely not ready to share the gospel yet, just invite someone to church. I mean, that's one of the benefits of being part of a healthy local church. You know that if you can get someone in here who does not believe in Jesus Christ they are going to be hit with the gospel for sure. Maybe they won't hear it in the songs that we sing. Maybe they won't hear it in the prayers that we pray, even though they're there. But you know that they'll hear it in this pulpit. Like this, right now, right here. The gospel is that God created everything good. But because of sin, everything is bad and ruined, including you and me. But Jesus Christ sent His Son to rescue us from the effects of the fall and our own sin, and to bring us back to himself. If we repent and believe in Jesus Christ, that great salvation can be ours. I preach the gospel, even evangelistically, every week in this church. And some weeks it feels a little silly as I look out and I see that everyone here is probably a Christian. I don't see any visitors some weeks, like this week. Oh, we have some visitors. But I still preach the gospel evangelistically in every sermon because I want that to be a part of our life in this church. I never want us to take it for granted that we have someone's time and attention with open Bibles 
and we can give them the gospel. They may not ever hear it again, but we can give it to them right here, right now. And the reason why we preach the gospel so fervently in the life of this church is because Jesus has empowered us to do so. You see, this whole prioritization of the preaching of the gospel to the Jews first doesn't mean that it was never meant to go out to the rest of the world. Even in today's parable, I told you we were going to come back to this, in Jesus' parable, he says, the children must be fed first, which means that there is always a plan for the rest to be fed. And after Jesus did what he came to do, he commissioned the disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Go to Matthew 28 in your Bibles, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, if you know a Jewish person in Decatur, Alabama, feel free to prioritize your ministry to them. But if you don't, you should be sowing your gospel seed indiscriminately. No prioritization in your evangelism. We should share the gospel with those who are like us and those who are unlike us. Those who are rich, those who are poor. Those who are black, those who are white. Those who are educated, those who are ignorant. Those who go to church, those who don't go to church. We should be like the man in the parable who scatters his seed on all types of soil not knowing whether or not the seed may bear fruit, but knowing that he has an abundance of seed and the Lord is the one who brings about the harvest. I think about this especially as Thanksgiving is coming up. We're about to see people that we probably don't get to see very often. We're about to see friends and family members, most of whom are lost. These are the people in some sense that we should be prioritizing the gospel should be trying to love our family in a very special way that we don't really love other people in the same way that I try to love my wife in the same way that I don't love other women in this church. Same way that I love my daughters as much as I love other children in this church, I don't love them the same way. That cousin that drives you crazy, who's always getting into trouble, you think he's never going to get it together? Maybe try to grab 10 minutes with him. If you have to run to the store to get something, Spend some time with them and try to find a way to bring up Christ in the gospel. Don't just assume, ah, Syrophoenician by birth, unlikely to receive what I have to say. Consider the God who is sovereign over Jew and Gentile alike, not a person's circumstances or background. In closing, guys, I just want to point out the fact that I don't think there's very many people in here whose grandparents have the last name Leibowitz or Goldman. Maybe that's not true. I don't think it's true. If your grandpa's last name is Leibowitz, you can disregard this comment. But if that's not true, if you are, in fact, not a descendant of Jewish lineage, not a child of Abraham, then this parable pictures you as the dog at the table. Not as a child. 
consider the fact that when we see Christ gathering in the Gentiles, that means that He's gathering in you and me. In today's text, we see a tiny glimpse of the fullness of God's plan beginning to unfold in the ministry of Jesus. But in today's room, we see that plan realized after 2,000 years of faithfulness. But it's not fully realized. Because one day, He will have a people from every tribe and tongue and nation gathered to Himself in heaven. With all the hosts of heaven, every single person that has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, man, woman, child, Jew, Gentile, young, old, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, all of them who are there will cry out and sing this from Revelation 5.9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for grafting us into your family. We lament the fact that the people that you wanted to give the bread to rejected it. But we are incredibly thankful that you have given us what you have to offer. We thank you that you didn't just merely extend the bread to us, but you also gave us the faith to receive it. And I pray that you would empower us to continue to walk in that faith, to continue to receive all of the goodness that you have to offer us in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ.